0: I have you loud
1: and clear. Hello, hello,
2: hello. 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 Welcome.
3: welcome. <laughs> science
1: and that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, space,
3: time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, welcome
2: to the Naked Scientists, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science and technology. I'm Katie Haler. Happy Easter. I hope you're all doing okay during this strange and difficult time. Today we're taking a step back from talking about coronavirus to bring you a Q&A show with a difference. Yes, we're answering some of the questions that you've been sending in and we're also getting stuck into some kitchen science experiments which you can join in with at home whether you're a big kid or a little
4: one. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk
5: Hello, I'm Adam Murphy from the Naked Scientist team. I have been stuck inside all week, and I imagine that a lot of you are stuck inside all week. So let's see what science we can do
6: in our kitchens.
5: I'm in my kitchen now, and I am joined remotely by Dave Ansell. Hi, Dave.
6: Hello. I'm also in my kitchen, surprisingly enough. We have a load of exciting demos for you to do today.
5: And listeners, you can follow along with us. Before every demo starts, we're going to tell you all the things you need to get to make that demo work so you can follow along with us.
2: There you go. Adam Murphy and Dave Ansell there, who've been getting to grips with a few egg experiments. Sorry, Easter pun. I couldn't resist. Now, like Adam says, if you want to play along at home, listen up because we'll tell you before each experiment what you're going to need. For the first experiment... Here's what you'll need.
6: Something rusty, some sandpaper and a store card, maybe an old credit card which you really don't need anymore. Something with a magnetic strip along the top of it.
2: And you can find out what you'll be doing with those bits and bobs later on. It's time for our first listener question, sent in by listener
4: Paul. What is the best way of preserving information for perpetuity?
2: Hmm. Well, Colin Johnson from the University of Nottingham has been pondering this one for us.
7: It's difficult to store information so that it can be accessed dozens, hundreds or thousands of years into the future. I'm sure we've all found a piece of paper that's faded after years in the sun or struggled to play an old VHS tape or found an old vinyl record but haven't got a record player. Even if we etch words into stone, centuries of erosion will render them illegible. Already, a lot of VHS tapes are unwatchable. CDs and DVDs, once touted as indestructible, might not last our lifetimes. Even if physical media survive, the machines might not. Some early video games cannot be played anymore because the consoles no longer work. Whole media, such as the Teletext service that provided text on TVs, almost lost a history there's been some recent success in recovering it from old videotapes. So what about a technology that doesn't require any hardware, like printed books? Many books from the 19th and 20th centuries were printed on slightly acidic paper that broke down over many decades, and so since the 1950s books have been printed on acid-free paper that should last 500 to 1,000 years. But improving the media that we store information on will only take us so far. If we want to preserve information for the long run, We need to make fresh copies of the information regularly. This is how texts have survived from the ancient world. Physical copies of the works of ancient Greek playwrights and philosophers haven't survived to the present day, but their words have been copied and recopied over the centuries. This applies to information stored on computers too. Rather than trying to make a disk last forever, instead we can copy it onto a new disk every few years. That will keep the information around indefinitely. ...as long as we don't encode it in a way that relies on an obscure piece of software to play it back. This gets even harder in an era where information is distributed across the internet. One document might survive, but its links to other documents won't. In 2017, the Canadian Supreme Court realised that many of its recent judgments... ...referred to information on the websites that had since vanished... ...and so now a copy of the sites are archived along with the judgments. What about really long-term storage of information... What if we need to store information that might outlive the English language or the collapse of civilization? This is, for example, a challenge for scientists who are storing nuclear waste that will be around for millennia. Rather than relying on text or any kind of culturally specific image, such as a warning triangle, instead they have to think about the fundamentals of how we communicate ideas, resorting to basic pictograms and thinking about how a civilization thousands of years hence might interpret or misinterpret that message. So it depends on how you want to store the information for. To ensure that your grandchildren can read it, a good quality printed book is fine. But if you want it to last for millennia, you've got a very different challenge on your hands.
2: Thank you, Colin. Time now to get your loyalty card, your rusty object and your sandpaper ready. Yep, it's kitchen science time. Back to Adam and Dave.
6: Adam, what you want to do first is get your rusty object and your sandpaper and have something to catch the dust which comes off it, because that's what we're interested in, and sand some of your rusty object onto your cup or a piece of paper to catch it with. So I've got an old barbecue, a very sort of small round barbecue thing, which is very, very rusty, which has been sitting in my garden for yonks and just a piece of sandpaper, which I've picked out of the shed. and I'm just sanding to produce a nice, fine dust, basically.
5: I've got an iron pot lid. It's got a bit of a rust around the rim. I've got an old emery board nail file because I couldn't find any sandpaper and a little plastic cup to catch it in. And... So now I have my plastic cup in front of me, and it is full of a ready orange powder, which is the powdered rust. What do I do with it now, Dave?
6: Put it onto the magnetic strip of your card, very liberally, and just kind of cover the magnetic strip with the rust powder. Ideally, you want the finer rather than the really coarse powder, and just spread it on okay. so the whole of that strip is covered.
5: Okay, so I've got the card and I've got the cup full of the rust powder and I'm just going to start tapping it out gently so I don't cover the entire house in rust.
6: And then once you've got it covered, just sort of gently tap the card so the rust falls off.
5: Okay, so I've got something on this. What can you see? And what I've got is that the rust particles have formed kind of in stripes, like you get on the back of a barcode packaging, like just loads of little stripes where there's rust and stripes where there's not.
6: That's brilliant. Uh, it turns out it doesn't work in with every card, so you may have to try two or three until you get one which works.
5: Yeah, this is the newest one I have.
6: <laughs> yeah, they do tend to die off for a while. Adam's one is working better than mine. I can see some stripes, but it's uh, only in one corner of my card. But there are definitely some stripes on there. So what you're seeing is the magnetic strip, is, as the name would imply, is magnetic. And it stores information by basically having strips which are magnetic one way and magnetic the other way, and other bits which aren't magnetic at all. What you're seeing is that the magnetic rust particles are only sticking to the parts which are magnetic. So you can visualize that magnetic barcode with your eyes.
5: And then how would a card reader read any information off of that barcode type thing then?
6: If you move a magnet near a coil of wire, you basically create a little tiny generator um, and you generate a voltage in that coil of wire. So there's a coil of wire in the magnetic barcode reader. And as you pull the strip past it, it induces little tiny um, voltages in that coil of wire, which some electronics and the computer can read, as I think what's normally stored on there is a the number on the front of the card.
5: And then is this the best way to store information or is it just a good way to store information? What is the best way?
6: It, well, it depends what you mean by best. It's uh, quite a retro way of storing information. It's the same technology as cassette tapes for the older members of the audience. Or VHS um, videotapes all use the same kind of magnetic storage of data, which are now having issues because uh, after 30 or 40 years, the tape starts to degrade and the rust falls off the tape. And so it stops being able to store information. And suddenly, all those radio shows, which everyone loved in the 70s, are becoming very hard to um, recover because even though the, the tape exists, the information has fallen off it. And it's just a pile of rust at the bottom of the cap.
2: Thanks, Dave. And thank you, Adam. For our next experiment, you'll need some white flowers or some celery, food colouring or a washable felt-tip pen, and a clear beaker with some water in it. Confused? Don't worry, all will be revealed. But before that, here's a question from Julie. How is it that cut flowers can continue to bloom when they're no longer part of the original plant? My lilies start to bloom over a week after they've been cut and placed in a vase, but why don't they die? is it something they put in the salt packets that come with the bouquets? To tackle Julie's blooming interesting question, see what I did there, here's hibiscus expert and PhD student from Cambridge University's Sainsbury Laboratory, Alice Fernie.
3: Flowers, they are the reproductive structures of a plant and they open for pollination and to produce seeds. Most cut flowers won't produce seeds, and that's because they lack the energy that comes from their now detached roots. But cut flowers do open. The answer to the incredible act of blooming is in the mechanisms of flower opening.
2: And we'll come on to those mechanisms shortly, but there are already a few clues in Julie's question. The lilies are in a vase of water and the bouquet was accompanied by what she referred to as the little salt sachet or packet. Alice says that for most flower species, opening and movement depends primarily on cell growth, elongation and expansion, and it's influenced by internal as well as external environments. Petal cell growth, elongation and expansion in turn depend on inputs, mainly water and heat. Remember, Julie's vase was filled with water? Well, how about trying an experiment at home? Split your cut flowers between vases, with and without water, and with and without the sun. Does this change how they open?
3: You might also notice differences between flower species in their response to the different experimental conditions. This is because although cell expansion and growth can explain much of flower opening, there are internal and external influences that also influence opening and that vary between flowers. Different flowers, for example, have different flower forms and the cells in different petal regions, for example, front versus back, the center or the middle versus the edge might expand at different rates and this will create different patterns of uncurling and opening. Different flowers are also found in different environments. Julie has lilies, and I have tulips on my desk. I also work
2: with a hibiscus. Lilies, Alice explains, remain open after blooming. Tulips repeatedly open and close with fluctuations in their external environment. And the hibiscus flower that Alice works with is affectionately and perhaps aptly named flower of an hour because each flower opens only in the right environmental conditions and only for a day or sometimes an hour.
3: But interestingly, they do open when the flower has been cut and when that flower that is cut is without water. And this is because they're adapted to their environment in which they experience water shortages. Cotton stems, which are relatives of hibiscus share the ability to open their flowers when they've been cut and without water. And this is because they're resistant to stem blockages. These stem blockages prevent water from reaching their flowers. They also store water in their cells of their flowers too, which means they can open even when the stem is without water. Cut roses, on the other hand, constantly need trim to prevent water blockages and to let the water flow to their flower cells. Rose food, for example, will often include stem unpluggers, chemicals that stop the stem from blocking and ensure your flowers open. And this brings me to those little salt packages you mention. These packages do look like salt, but they're in fact plant foods. A mixture typically of sugar and bleach, but sometimes these stem unpluggers. Why don't the packages contain salt? While well, salt is dehydrating, If we have salt in our vase or in our water, we draw water away from the cells in the stem and preventing flower cells, too, from expanding.
2: So why is sugar in these packets? Well, sugar is a food for plants to promote cell expansion and growth, just like the sugars and energy needed to fuel legs through a marathon or, my legs, a light jog. To increase the life of your cut lilies, Alice suggests Julie that you try removing a few of the dying flowers from a still-blooming bud. This will help new buds access the limited sugar supplies, rather than feeding the old dying ones. So in the packets of so-called plant food you get with a bunch of flowers, there's sugar, chemicals to prevent the stems getting
3: plugged up, and bleach. Why is there bleach? Well, bleach also helps with floral longevity by keeping the cut stems clean and preventing bacterial growth. You could experiment at home, add salt or sugar to your vase, are there other nutrients that plants need to grow? Do they need hormones like us? You can even visualise water movement within the stems, just add a couple of droplets of food colouring to your vase either with freshly cut flowers, old flowers, stems, Or stems that have been sealed at the base with Vaseline that mimics a stem blockage. Thank you, Alice. And
2: there are even more things that can influence flower opening, like hormones, genes and the plant cell wall. But those might be topics for next time. And it's funny Alice mentioned experimenting with plants at home because that's just what Dave Ansell and Adam Murphy have been getting up to.
6: For this demo, what you want is ideally some nice, fresh carnations or something with nice big white petals, which is just coming into bloom and is really um, enthusiastic. However, it's a bit hard to get hold of at the moment. So what I've got is some slightly ill-looking daisies and some very ill-looking celery.
5: I didn't want to go off and steal my neighbor's flowers. So all I have is uh, some celery.
6: And you also want a little bit of water in a cup or a glass and something to colour that water with. So either some food colouring or maybe an old felt pen, which isn't completely dead, washable felt pens. You can pull the sponge in the back out of and get the ink out of it. If you are opening up a felt pen, be very careful, especially the ones designed for younger children are incredibly hard to open. So get an adult to do that.
5: Okay, so I've got a jar, and I'm going to fill that up with water.
6: I'll do the same. And then you want to colour it with food colouring or some ink. So it's fairly dark, not completely opaque. You don't want it, so much ink in there that it's kind of syrupy. But you want it so it's definitely very strongly coloured.
5: I'm going to open this bottle of red food colouring that I have. It's a very dark red food colouring. And I'm going to just open it up and then pour in. And now I have a jar of dark red liquid, which looks very suspect.
6: I've just taken the sponge out of the back of a child's felt pen and I'm just squeezing the ink out of it into the water so i'm getting some really deep purple water Uh, i'm not 100 sure which of these is going to work best but we can both try one and see which is the best way of coloring the water okay so mix in that ink or food coloring and i now have very purple fingers so now we want to treat your flowers or the celery as if it was normal cut flowers so you want to cut them uh, probably diagonally put them into the water and then leave them for a while
5: I've got my sharp knife and if you are doing this at home please remember to have a grown up with you while you do this and I'm cutting the bottom of my celery and now I have freshly cut celery and this goes in the jar Dave yes?
6: Yeah so I'm doing the same thing with my slightly ill looking daisies and my very ill looking celery put it in the jar as if it was a vase then want to put it on a nice bright window cell where it's reasonably warm and then we'll come back in a few days and see what happens.
2: Which, funnily enough, is exactly what they did.
6: So it's been three days and I've got various flowers and celery in various different coloured liquids. Um, how's yours done, Adam?
5: Mine have not gone particularly well. I just have some celery sitting in some red water. It hasn't really done anything. What about your end, Dave? What have you gotten?
6: So I've got one, which is basically exactly the same as yours, which is just some celery sitting in some red water. And I've got some daisies sitting in some blue water, which have done virtually nothing. I think both of these were in food colouring. That's what you used, wasn't it?
5: It was indeed, red food colouring.
6: However, the one I used in ink from a felt pen has worked really nicely. The leaves are all nice and purple. It looks like almost a different breed of celery.
5: Why has one worked and one not worked?
6: So I think this is a mistake I made, which was um, that food colouring has changed since I was a child. In the olden days, food colouring was made of all sorts of lovely, very soluble chemicals um, made in a chemical factory, um, which were very strongly coloured. Whereas these days, because those are possibly not ideal for children, they've converted lots of vegetable dyes, which have got bigger molecules, and they're probably more likely to stick to organic things, to to plants. And so if I slice up my celery, in fact, do you want to try this too, Adam? Just take a series of small slices off the bottom of your celery. See if you can see the colour working its way up the celery at all.
5: So if I look really closely there's like a one or two red veins working their way maybe a centimeter or two up to celery that's about it
6: yeah that's that's what i found with my salary if i cut down after about a centimeter they stop entirely on the celery from the food coloring because what's going on in plants is they've got little tiny tubes which go from the roots up the leaves which are a way of solving a problem that plants have, which is how to get all the useful nutrients up from the um, roots up to the leaves, because they don't have a heart, they have no way of pumping it actively. So what they have is they have these long, thin tubes called xylee, which go from the leaves down to the roots. And whilst the roots do push the water up a little bit, mostly what's happening is that water evaporates from the leaves and that reduces pressure in these tubes and that just basically sucks more water up through these long xylea and water and the nutrients get taken up with it and so what you're seeing is that the dye is getting pulled up those xylea a bit but it's stopping after about a centimetre with your one.
2: So it kind of worked for Adam and Dave but could you do better? Reckon you can get that colourful liquid further up the xylems? Let us know. We'd love to hear about it and you could send us a picture. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com Or tweet us at Naked Scientists.
4: Hello, I'm Chris Barrow bringing you a brand new podcast called Naked Gaming. This is where we look at gaming news. If you have a hit, if you make a first game and it it hits, it's incredibly hard to recreate that in the second game. Reviews... Is it wrong to give a game 0 out of 10? That feels... Oh, I
3: love it. Go for
4: it. OK, I'm just going to go hard in here. 0 out of 10. Don't waste your money.
3: Oh,
4: and we also go back in time with Retro Revival.
3: I think I'm a hypocrite because last time I'm like, oh, well, they just made the same game again and that's bad. But
4: this time I'm like, nah, it's pretty good. I'm <laughs> happy with Make the same that. game. <laughs> Make it again. Download it now wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Today we're answering a few of your science questions and bringing you a few experiments that you can try at home. For our next experiment, you'll simply need a balloon, access to a tap and some hair. Don't worry, you don't have to cut the hair off your body. Can you guess what we're up to with this? Stay tuned to find out. But first, Andrew has got in touch with this electrifying question.
4: Hi guys, my question is this, and I've wandered on and off for years. What happens to unused electricity? I live in Australia and I'm fairly used to periodic load shedding when, for instance, the grid can't supply everyone's air conditioning on very hot days. But what happens when there is very low demand? There is power when you switch a light on but when it's switched off again, where does that electricity go? It's being generated and fed into the grid, but If everyone switched off their homes at the same time, what would happen to that electricity fed into the wires at the generator end?
2: The load shedding Andrew's referring to can occur, according to an ABC Australia news article, when power companies reduce electricity consumption by switching off the power supply to groups of customers because the entire system is at risk. This could be because there's a shortage of electricity supply or to prevent transmission and distribution lines from becoming overloaded. To illuminate the answer to Andrew's question, here's energy industry specialist and now energy storage PhD researcher, Rachel Lee from Sheffield University.
4: In an electricity system like the Australian grid, electricity generated must be matched on a second by second basis to the electricity required by consumers So when you switch a light on in your house, somewhere in the country, a generator puts more fuel in or a hydro plant takes more water. When you turn it off, the opposite happens. Electricity is generated and transmitted as alternating current or AC, meaning that it comes to your house as a wave that's constantly cycling from positive to negative and back again. How quickly that happens depends on the speed the generators are turning. In Australia and many parts of the world, We aim to have 50 of those cycles every second. We call that the frequency in hertz, so that's the 50 hertz you may have heard of. The operator of the network detects the change in load by change in that frequency. If the demand exceeds supply, the generators will slow down, just like your car going up a hill, and the frequency falls, and vice versa. Of course, for just a light, the extra electricity required is so small compared to the total supply that it is lost in all the other things being turned on and off. But when the changes in load are large, for example when people get home at 5-6pm to and all turn on their air conditioners, the system frequency will start to fall. Some generators will automatically start increasing output to bring the frequency back to 50Hz, but in some cases the system operator may request additional plant to start. If there isn't enough plant available, then that is when load shedding could happen. However, load shedding is often also the result of high demands locally in the system when the wires and transformers supplying your area get overloaded. If everyone switched off at the same time, then the system frequency would rise very rapidly. Plants in automatic frequency control would quickly reduce their output. But if this wasn't enough, then eventually the frequency would go so high that over-frequency protection on generators and other parts of the system would operate and disconnect generators completely. Normally, the system frequency is very tightly controlled. In Australia, AEMO, the Australian Electricity Market Operator, aims to control the frequency between 49.85 and 50.15 Hz. Within this normal range, generators are centrally set to their required output every 5 minutes and further signals are sent to raise or lower output on a second-by-second basis. If the frequency goes outside of those bounds then contingency frequency control services are called upon to operate, and these aim to maintain the frequency between 49.5 and 50.5 Hz. Depending on the service provided, these must respond in between 6 seconds and 5 minutes. Although the fine detail of frequency control varies around the world, the basic process remains the same everywhere. A system frequency below normal means more generation is required, and the frequency above normal means last generation is required. There is really never any spare electricity.
2: Cheers, Rachel, for generating the answer for us. And talking of generating electricity, it's time now for our next kitchen science experiment. So let's join Dave and Adam back in their respective kitchens to find out what it involves.
6: For this demo what you're going to need is a balloon either a long thin one or a short round one an attack which you can turn down and some hair many people find their head hair works well cat hair is supposed to be brilliant but I find that the best is my leg hair
5: Okay, so I've got a purple princess balloon, because that's what the shop had. I'm standing beside my tap, and I needed a haircut two weeks before we went into isolation, so I definitely have enough hair to do this. What do I do with the stuff, Dave?
6: First, blow up your balloon. I blow up mine.
5: Okay, I've got my balloon all blown up. Now, what do I do with this?
6: What I want you to do is rub it on some hair. Um, I'll pull up my trouser leg and rub
5: it on my leg. Okay, just rubbing this on my head hair now. I am in dire need of a haircut. Okay, so I've got a head rubbed balloon. What do I do now, Dave?
6: So did you notice anything odd happening as you were rubbing it?
5: Yeah, my hair is standing on end now.
6: <laughs> so what's happening is that the electrons, which are little uh, tiny particles which whiz around atoms and are negatively charged, slightly prefer being in the balloon than being in your hair. So whenever a bit of hair touches onto a bit of a balloon, a few electrons get transferred from one to the other. Not many, a very, very small number get transferred. The reason why you're rubbing is because as you rub, more different bits of hair get to touch different bits of balloon. So more electrons are transferred and you get a bigger negative charge transferred to the balloon. Now, what I want you to do is turn on your tap. So you've got a very thin but continuous stream of water coming out along it.
5: Okay, turning on my tap now.
6: Make sure your balloon is really well charged, so give it another quick rub on your hair. And then move the bit of the balloon which you've charged up close to that stream of water.
5: Okay. So when I bring the balloon near the water, it starts to pull the stream of water towards it like they were magnets coming together.
6: Totally. What happened with your hair is uh, earlier is that um, your balloon was becoming negatively charged and your hair was becoming positively charged because it it lost its negative charge, and positive attracts negative, so your hair was attracted to the balloon. But with the stream of water, the stream of water isn't positively charged. But when you put the balloon near it, it will tend to repel any negative charge, and the electrons tend to be able to move more easily Than the central nuclei of the atoms, the positive nuclei of the atoms. So negative charge. Some electrons will get pushed away from the balloon, leaving positive charge near it, which attracts it. So the stream of water is attracted to the balloon. And also, I've just noticed that if you bring the balloon near a very very slow stream of water, you hear a kind of cricket. That's a little kind of crinkling noise. This is because the stream of water is actually breaking up and little droplets of water are hitting the balloon. And Because these droplets of water are coming from the side nearest the balloon, they tend to be positively charged. This tends to kill the charge on your balloon very quickly. And so the effect gets weaker and weaker over time.
5: So is this how we could store electricity then, Dave?
6: This is probably the only way we can store electricity directly. You have an object, which a large object, which will accept um, some charge, and it will charge up. it does that, the voltage will increase, and then you can release that energy quickly and do something useful with it. The obvious example is if you get really charged up by walking along I know a strange plastic floor, um, and then you touch something else or somebody else, you often get a little spark, a little shock, and that's the electrical energy which has been stored on your body being released through your finger. And, causing a little bit of pain. This is a tiny amount of energy, so it's not going to be at all significant compared to National Grid, for example, unless you design your object so they can store a huge amount of charge. And uh, the electronic component which is designed to do this is called a capacitor. And big banks of capacitors can store a significant amount of energy, but not really a useful amount of energy still. They're, They're useful for things like smoothing electrical signals, but you couldn't drive a car on it for very long.
5: So we won't be hugging hot air balloons up to the grid anytime soon?
6: Yeah, no, um, we're not going to be using hot air balloons. No, I mean, even the really extreme example which of this effect, which is lightning, although it's really impressive the time it happens and you get sort of millions of volts and millions of amps going along, it happens for such a small portion of time that actually the amount of energy produced is not really very useful to us.
2: But getting your hair to stand up is pretty fun nonetheless thanks dave and thank you adam
7: the naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with spitfire cost-effective voice internet and ip engineering services for uk businesses find out how spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for
5: audio and video productions.
2: This week, it's a Q&A show. We're answering some of the questions you've been sending in. Plus, we're doing a few experiments that you can follow along with at home. As it's Easter time, we couldn't resist the lure of an egg experiment pun with the next demo. Sorry. If you want to follow along, you'll simply need an egg, a lidded jar, some vinegar and some patience. But before that, here's another listener question.
6: Hello, I'm Amelia and I'm 12. And my excellent question for Easter is, how do chicken eggs
2: get fertilised when there's a shell around them? (laughs) Thank you, Amelia. And to crack open the science of chicken development for you, here's postdoctoral researcher at King's College London and the Francis Crick Institute, Afnan Azizi, who, by day, works on early mammalian brain development.
1: So the eggshell is made up of calcium carbonate or calcite, uh, which is the same stuff that limestone and marble are made of. And the whole function of the eggshell is to protect the developing embryo of the chicken from danger, especially from things like bacteria and parasites. So a rooster's sperm definitely can't get through the shell to fertilize the egg. But it can before the shell is formed. So um, the chicken's reproductive tract is about 75 centimeters long, and each part of it is specialized to form the egg to the final shape and form that we see it. And like the female members of uh, many other animal species, including humans, each chicken is born with all the eggs that she'll ever lay, fertilize or not. Just to clarify... When we say an X-cell, in biology, we mean the cell that is contributed by the mother and uh, fuses to the sperm to create the zygote. And the zygote is the very first cell that has the genetic information from the mom and the dad. It then divides many, many times to make a new animal. So at any given time in a chicken's ovaries, you have X-cells and yolks of varying maturity. And the yolk is a food storage system, because if the egg cells fertilize, the mother hen can't actually feed the growing embryo like human mothers can. So at each reproductive cycle, the most mature yolk with its attached egg cell is dropped into a special pouch called the infundibulum, it's a mouthful, where it stays for up to half an hour, and this is the only chance the sperm will get to fertilize the egg. Now, if a rooster has mated with a chicken and the sperm has managed to swim the approximately 70 centimeters or so distance to combine with the egg cell, then you could get a fertilized chicken egg. After this, the rest of the process is the same for the fertilized and unfertilized eggs. The yolk is covered by a layer of albumin, or egg white, and that is all wrapped up in a couple of really thin membranes. The outer one has a network of regularly spaced protein fibers. Um, and that is where the calcium carbonate crystallizes in a process called calcification. And this process is very similar to what happens in bone development, but is much, much faster when making the eggshell. And the chicken gets the calcium actually from its ribs and leg bones, and that has to be replaced by calcium from the, from the food. And the carbonate comes from the carbon dioxide that it would normally breathe out. So it's taking the calcium from its bones and the carbon dioxide from its breath to make this shell. The whole process then takes about 26 hours um, and half an hour after the chicken lays its egg, it can actually start the process again and make a new egg. An interesting fact is that chickens that have mated can store a rooster's sperm for up to two weeks and fertilize multiple eggs after mating only once. Now, it's good to know that majority of eggs we get from supermarkets and grocery stores aren't fertilized because the farmers limit mating of egg-laying chickens but even if the egg were fertilized we need an optimal temperature of 37 degrees celsius to grow and anything below room temperature would completely stop its development so it's very unlikely to get a fertilized egg from most commercial sources and even if one does make it to your kitchen it is very unlikely to develop unless you put it in an incubator
2: Thanks, Afnan, for that excellent answer. I'm enjoying these puns, can't you tell? Time now, though, for the next kitchen science experiment with Adam and Dave.
6: For this demo, you need an egg, some vinegar, ideally some sort of malt vinegar, something really quite strong, and a jar with a lid on it, ideally.
5: I've got my egg, I've got my vinegar, and I've got a jar. So, Dave, how do we go about putting together this egg experiment?
6: Very good. First of all, you want to take some vinegar and pour it into the jar. I happen to have a gallon of malt vinegar here for some reason, so I'll pour this in.
5: I do not have a gallon, but I'll pour in what I've got.
6: (laughs) You want enough in there so that the egg's going to be completely covered, but not so much that you're going to get vinegar all over the table when you put an egg in it. (laughs) Take your egg and lower it gently into the jar, ideally without breaking it. Then put the lid on loosely, not too tightly, because you might get some gas given off in this reaction. Oh, looking at my egg now, it's covered in little tiny bubbles. These should be carbon dioxide because the egg <laughs> shell is made of calcium carbonate, the same stuff as limestone, and that will react with the vinegar to create um, salt and carbon dioxide, which is coming off as bubbles.
5: Is this process just like pickling eggs, like you'd buy pickled eggs in a chip shop?
6: Not quite the same, though it has some similar properties. Normally, when you pickle something, you would cook it first, which will um, break down all of the cells and make it a lot easier for the vinegar to diffuse into the middle and basically fill the whole thing with vinegar, um, which will kill any bacteria in there. So preserve it. You also kill the bacteria by cooking it, which is useful um we're also not giving this nearly long enough to fully pickle it so maybe the outside edge of the egg will end up pickled but the middle of it won't have enough time to be pickled properly and then leave it for a few hours or probably better overnight and we'll have a look at it then
2: this is where the patience comes in but rest assured adam and dave have plenty of time on their hands
5: Right. So it has been three days, roughly, since I put my egg in a jar of vinegar. And unfortunately, my egg has lost integrity and there's now just a fairly disgusting puddle sitting in a jar. Dave, have you had any better look than me?
6: My egg, it looks, it's still egg-shaped. It's covered in some bubbles. I think it's probably grown a little bit than it had before. I'll just pour it out of the jar into a bowl. And it doesn't have a shell on it at all. It's kind of kind of slightly squishy. It was a brown egg and the sort of filmy membrane which is floating around it. But and if I hold it up to the light, you can just it's sort of a translucent ball. You can just about you can see where the yolk is floating around inside.
5: When you say it's grown a bit, what do you mean by that?
6: Now instead of being covered by a hard shell, the hard shell is dissolved in the vinegar. It's just covered in that kind of membrane which you get just underneath the shell of an egg. And that's kind of rubbery. And so I think what's happened is that osmosis, there's a process called osmosis, which means liquid will tend to go from less concentrated areas to more concentrated areas. So some water's moved into the egg and it's swelled up slightly. So it feels taut inside. It's very, very rigid. Like a full balloon, yeah, it basically feels like a balloon full of egg.
5: So what's actually happened to it? Why is it turned from an egg to a balloon full of egg?
6: The balloon was all, always inside the egg. It's that membrane which you find if you open it if you're eating a boiled egg and it tends to stick inside the shell. but the vinegar has just dissolved away the hard shell, leaving that membrane, and it swelled up a bit um due to osmosis.
5: And then, do you have any ideas about why yours worked well and mine disintegrated?
6: Did you use a very cheap egg, Adam?
5: It, it, wasn't, it wasn't top shelf, let's put it that way.
6: My guess is that, whereas mine was actually quite a good quality free-range egg, my guess is that large, healthy chickens will probably have more resources to spare to make a nice, big, strong membrane around the outside of their eggs, whereas slightly unhealthy um, battery chickens probably put less effort into it, and so the eggs are less robust. It's definitely true of the thickness of the shell, so I don't see why it wouldn't be true of the membrane as well. Would you be willing to eat this egg? There's no fundamental reason not to. I imagine it will taste very strongly of vinegar, um, but I want to cook it first.
5: Yeah, I think I'd want to do that. I think otherwise it would be a hard no from me.
2: Was that a hard-boiled no, Adam? <laughs> oh dear, these jokes are getting worse, aren't they? Sorry. Let's move on. Now, our final experiment is Perhaps a little less scientific. I'm sure many of you will have done this before. What do you need? Well, soap, water and something to make a bubble former. wire wrapped around a string, a coat hanger, something like that. But before you go bubble bananas, here's the last listener question we're going to talk about today. And it's from Donald.
4: Why is it normal shampoos and soaps sting my eyes and baby shampoos don't?
2: To clean up the chemistry here, here's Cambridge University chemist, Liliana Froek. So before I answer this
0: question, let's look at the eyes first. To make sure we can focus well on the images around us, the surface of the eye needs to be smooth. Any imperfections or surface debris would interfere with this, possibly blurring our vision. So to maintain a healthy eye surface, our eyes are moist and our tear glands produce a complex mix of water and salts and enzymes to create a tear film, which is constantly maintained. Embedded within the cornea, which is a part of um, an eye, are also sensitive nerves And they can detect slight changes in the environment and make the eye blink or tear up to remove dust or pathogens such as bacteria or viruses. The thing about these nerves is that they are particularly sensitive to changes in pH, noticing if liquid became more acidic or basic. The optimal pH of the eye is around 7. Now, the ordinary shampoo is usually slightly acidic to be able to remove the dirt without damaging the proteins which um, make up our hair and they are sensitive to more alkaline conditions. And I am just now looking at the shampoo, which I've taken from my bathroom. And if you look at the labels, they also contain lots of different molecules, many of them being surfactants. Surfactants are molecules which are composed of two distinct chemical parts. One is attracted to water, the other one to the oil. So basically, they act as bridges between two liquids which are not mixing, like water and oil. And these surfactants also reduce surface tension. And this allows the shampoo to spread very nicely over a larger area and also to produce a good foam. A commonly uh, used surfactant, which you will find in shampoo, and shampoo-like products is sodium lauryl sulfate. And it's usually obtained from palm oil. And it's known to cause a little bit of a skin um, and eye irritation, because surfactants also can disrupt our cell membranes a little bit, and they can cause a a little bit of an unfolding of our proteins, which we can then experience as stinging or a little bit of pain. No tear and other baby shampoos, they contain different surfactants. So, for example, sodium lauryl sulfate is anionic surfactant, that means it's charged. Uh, Baby shampoos will contain surfactants, which are more neutral, and they are also formulated to have a pH closer to 7. That also means that they don't clean so well. And if you have ever used baby shampoo, it doesn't foam as good. Funnily, it was for a long time, there were urban legends that actually baby shampoos have the same composition, but they contain desensitizing medication, which would mean that there are some drugs in the shampoo that numb the eyes. This, of course, it's not um, true. And this is not the composition of a baby shampoo. But ideally, uh, uh, the surfactant should be kept away from ice. And that's why there are some recommendations as well that if something comes into your eyes, you need to wash it with a plenty of water.
2: Thank you, Liliana, for rinsing away our uncertainty. Time now for our last experiment, one suitable for big kids and little kids alike. Over to Dave and Adam.
6: You want some bubble mixture. If you've got some in a pot which comes made commercially, that will work fine. You can also just use washing up liquid and water. It will work better if you live in a hard water area like most of East Anglia where we are here. Um, Either if you use deionized water like you'd use put into a battery for a car or even just using some natural spring water from somewhere in Scotland with nice soft water. And adding a little glycerin as well will make the bubble mix bubbles last longer. You also want some something to make bubble formers with, so maybe some wire or some pipe cleaners. Using wire, you also want some string to wrap around it to basically make your own pipe cleaners. I didn't
5: have any commercial bubble mixture, so I've gotten a little bit of water and I put in quite a lot of washing up liquid into that. And in terms of former, I've just got a coat hanger that I've folded into a few loops.
6: That'll work. For complicated reasons, I have a gallon of bubble mixture, which was in my shed, so I'm going to use that. Um, And I've got some wire with some string wrapped around it to make formers. I'm going to pour my bubble mixture into a jug, which is making it really nice and bubbly. And now we can make some bubbles.
5: Yeah, this one is just fun. I've been standing here blowing bubbles.
6: Oh, that's a really nice bubble.
5: (laughs) So I've got kind of a little loop here, and I found that it's not good at blowing big bubbles, but what it will do is blow a load of smaller ones, which is fun.
6: I've got a pear-shaped loop of wire with string wrapped around it. The string basically just holds the bubble mixture and stops the film drying out. And it's about six centimetres long and three centimetres wide. uh, If I blow a bubble with it, they're coming out at maybe seven or eight centimetres across. I was impressed. Turns out that this bubble mixture is pretty good. Well, that one was almost about fifteen centimeters.
2: Okay, okay, stop showing off. Where's the science in all of this?
6: Something to notice is that although your your, blow, your the, the loop which you're blowing with probably isn't a circle, all the bubbles very quickly turn into a, a ball shape, a sphere. So this film, although it reduces the surface tension of water, the surface tension is basically water is the surface of water doesn't like being a surface it tries to get as small as possible so although the detergent reduces this surface tension it doesn't take it away entirely and you can show this if you happen to make a a former and you get an extra piece of string down the middle so and you pull it out so there's a film on both sides of the piece of string if you pop the bubble on one side of the string the string is pulled across in the other direction because the film is trying to shrink and get as small as it possibly can. And the shape, which, for a certain volume, which is the smallest possible, has the smallest possible surface area, is a sphere. So bubbles always try and form spheres, unless you get more than one bubble touching, when you can get other interesting effects.
5: And it is also fun as well. (laughs) So, Dave, if... The bubbles are more stable and they pull themselves into spheres. Why do they just pop in the air after a while?
6: As soon as there's a hole in the bubble, it will pop because it's trying to shrink as quickly as possible, I mean, just like a balloon, and any hole will make it pop. Now, there's various ways of making holes. The traditional one is that you poke it with your finger and it goes pop or it hits the floor and it, will, um, and it makes a break and the rest of the bubble collapses. But in ideal conditions, the two things which will cause it to fail. One is the water in it slowly evaporates and you eventually end up with no water in some part of the film and then it will go pop. The other effect is that there is a little gap between the two layers of detergent in the film. And the water will tend to flow down this gap. In fact, if you look at the film closely, if you get get a fresh film and hold up the light, you can kind of see little runnels of liquid flowing down through it as the water drains out of the film. And in a bubble, eventually all the water will drain from the top and end up with no liquid at the top, at which point you get a hole, at which point it pops. And this is why you add things like viscerin to bubble mixture, which will um, make the water more viscous and slow down the rate at which it's flowing down through the film. And so the bubble will last longer. And they actually add it to washing up liquid to make the foams last longer. Apparently, they do the same thing with European clothes washing powder, but not with American clothes washing powder. Everyone who, in Europe has washing machines which you can see that see the side in, so you want to be able to see some bubbles. If, if it's not making bubbles, then everyone thinks their washing powder isn't working. Um, but it doesn't actually help clean the clothes, having bubbles. Um, the detergent does, but the bubbles don't. And in the States, no one has washing machines, which you can see inside of. So no one expects see bubbles. So aren't, they don't make any.
5: And of course, if you're stuck inside as well, this is a fun way to entertain all the kids. I mean, I'm a 31-year-old kid and it's entertaining me.
2: Very glad to hear it, Adam. Now I know what to get you for your next birthday. We'd love to see how big a bubble you can get. Let us know. You could send us a photo at Naked Scientists on Twitter and Facebook, and we're even on Instagram. And that's all we've got time for this week. A big thank you to Dave Ansell and Adam Murphy for experimenting in their kitchens. I hope it's inspired you to do a bit of kitchen science in your own home too. Thanks to our contributing scientists this week. You heard from Colin Johnson, Liliana Frook, Alice Fernie, Afnan Azizi and Rachel Lee. And thank you to you for listening and sending in your questions. If you've got a biological brain buster or a chemical query, you can send it in. NakedScientist.com slash question. Or you can email Chris at the com, Or you can catch us on social media. We're at Naked Scientists. Next week, we're taking you on a voyage of discovery using only the view outside your window. From cloud spotting to bird watching to stargazing, you're never going to see the sky in the same way again. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's sponsored by Rolls-Royce. I'm Katie Haler. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.